0: This morning, I want to pick up the discussion we had last time. We talked about Ezra Nehemiah, which is a fifth-century phenomenon, and we talked about the revival of Jewish life in Eretz Israel in the land of Israel in the fifth century, when Ezra Nehemiah, with the authority behind them of the kings of Persia, came back and reconstructed Jewish life and set in place very fundamental factors that would play themselves out repeatedly in Jewish history, especially with regard to Torah study, translation of the Torah into Aramaic and the Targumim, and interpretation of the Torah. Today, we pick up a, the second great event in the classical period, and that, of course, is the encounter with Hellenism. Hellenism, as you know, is the word we use for later Greek culture. And Hellenism is a very important phenomenon in world history, but for the Jewish people I would make two claims. That the encounter with Hellenism was perhaps the most important cultural encounter of two civilizations in the history of the world. And I don't do that out of a kind of uh, Jewish aggrandizement or sort of self-importance. I'll try to explain to you why that is the case why the meeting of Judaism and Hellenism became so crucial. And the second is that it was through this encounter that Judaism became world consequential. That is say, had the encounter with Hellenism never occurred, it may well be that Judaism would never have become all that it became in the history of the world. Now, some of you may be surprised at that, but you'll see that I think both of those claims are true. The period between Ezra and Nehemiah, let's say the 450s, 440s of the 5th century, and the 320s of the 4th century, were a dark age in the land of Israel. By a dark age, I don't mean that there was uh, terrible violence or massacres or pogroms. I mean inconsequential. We don't have any literature that seems to be important. We don't have any famous figures that come to mind. We don't have any innovations. The land of Israel was a backward little place uh, the economy was very rudimentary, and from what we know is that the, essentially Jewish life was centered in Yerushalayim, and it ran as a sort of a small mini city-state, as all the old uh, city-states of the Greek world did, and it was ruled by the high priest. We don't know the names of the high priests even. We don't have any special evidence, but then something changes with enormous explosive force, In the 320s, Alexander comes, you all know Alexander the Great, comes out of Macedon. His father was Philip of Macedon, and he studied as a young man with Aristotle. He had a very good uh, education. He had a mother who was Meshuggah, and she thought that he was uh, going to be great, and she was right. Uh, She was a Jewish mother who actually turned out to be right. And... Alexander had these grandiose schemes of conquering the world, and essentially most of the known world was actually conquered by him. He would die eventually as a young man in his 30s on the boundary line between India and Afghanistan, and he's buried somewhere no one knows. When he came through the Middle East on his way towards the conquest of the Persian Empire, he came down through what is today Turkey and then through Syria, in Syria and in Lebanon. In Lebanon, he had a very famous two-year siege of the city of Tyre, and then he conquered Tyre, and he came further down into the land of Israel, and he came across the coastline, because obviously the place he wanted to get to was Egypt. Egypt was the great prize. But it's important for us to briefly know that he came through the land of Israel for one reason. There are traditions. I want to stress, they are traditions. We have them in the Talmud, we have them in Josephus, that when Alexander the Great came through the land of Israel, the high priest was smart enough not to fight him. The Jews accepted that he would be the new overlord of the land of Israel. And instead of giving him any kind of uh, obstruction, the high priest came to meet him. The traditions vary as to where they meet. Some said he came to Yerushalayim, others say that the high priest came to meet him in Gaza. But in either case, the tradition, the tradition is that Alexander said to the high priest, I had a vision about the God of Israel and the truth of Judaism. And I appreciate your traditions. And I give you the guarantee the guarantee, that you will be allowed to follow the faith of your fathers. In other words, he wasn't going to coerce them to be something else. Now, we won't have time to talk about this because we're going to skip a lot of things. This is just a short lecture series. But I call your attention to that pronouncement that you'll be entitled to follow the faith of your fathers because that becomes very important over the next 250 or 300 years. Every time a tyrant rises up, especially under the Syrian Greeks, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, Antiochus III, and they try to squeeze the Jews religiously, the Jews always fall back on this pledge of Alexander to say that they have the legitimate right not to become pagans, not to become Greeks if they don't want to. The, the pledge became an important part of the mentality of Jewish culture in the classical world. Now when Alexander conquered all of these territories, he made a very important strategic decision. Remember last time I told you one of the great problems, perhaps the greatest problem in classical history is not victory in the military sense. The victor is always stronger than the conquered, the vanquished. The military victory is not difficult. What's difficult is to maintain an empire. And we saw that both the Assyrians and the Babylonians had a theory of empire. They take away the leadership of the Jewish people or other peoples, and they transplant them to Babylonia, to other parts of their empire, in the presumption that if you take away the educated classes, what's left can't make revolution. That's the theory of empire. By Alexander's time, it was clear that that theory of empire was not altogether satisfactory. So Alexander came to a new theory, whether it was encouraged by his teacher Aristotle or by other ways, other instruments, we don't know. But he came up with a new theory of maintaining empire. And that is called Hellenism. Hellenism is essentially a theory of empire. Now what is the cultural foundation, the political ideology? that when you have lots of different people in an empire with lots of different religions, lots of different cultures, lots of different languages, etc., you're bound to have friction. In such a multivalent empire, somebody is always going to feel that they are the minority, that they are being disenfranchised, that they have less influence than someone else. Hellenism is the idea that you try to overcome these differences by a kind of cultural assimilation, acculturation. Hellenism is the theory that you take all these multi-glot peoples and you turn them all into Greeks. You might call this Greekism. You turn them into Greeks. How do you turn them into Greeks? You encourage them to study the Greek language in its uh, sort of everyday form. And the Greek language then becomes a common bond between all the peoples of the world. And later on, this is what happened in the modern empires, right? The British taught the people in India to speak English, and the French taught the people in Africa to speak uh, French, and the Spaniards taught the New World to speak Spanish. Language was crucial. The second thing, of course, and we'll come back to, was religion, If religion is not a matter of diversity and of difference, but all the peoples would essentially be polytheists and pagans and they'd all worship Diana and Zeus and the Greek gods in some form, it would be an overcoming of the sources of friction. If they all had the same cultural interests, so they all went to the theater and watched Sophocles and uh, Euripides, and especially important in the roman in the uh, hellenistic empire was athletics perhaps like our time it's in some ways the hellenism is like our time where english is being spread all over by the computer by the internet by the power of the united states where uh, religion is uh, an issue the importance of athletics cannot be stressed enough remember when we talk about greek culture we usually think of plato and aristotle right that's if we're cultured but For the average Greek, as well as for the average uh, Oriental person, they were not reading Plato and Aristotle, even if they knew Greek, the language, even if they now started to have some kind of religious syncretism. But athletics was a very common bond. It was sort of the lowest common denominator. And for the Orientals, by adopting athletics in the Greek sense, by the Greek sense, I mean going to athletic games naked. Very important. You have to know that when you went to the athletic games, you went naked. And that would become an important issue vis-a-vis Jews because when Jews went to the athletic games and they were circumcised, they would be laughed at. They were a source of derision. And we even know that there were Jewish men who tried to re-engineer circumcision to try to make it look like they were not Jews. So the fact is athletics was very important. And whenever a Greek went naked to the athletic games, it was a sign that he was accepting Hellenism. When his culture, when his city-state put on athletic games, it was a sign that the city was accepting Hellenism. When people prepared, after all, you don't just go to the Olympics, you have to prepare, right? You have to do your training, you have to become an athlete, you have to do all those things. And where was that done? That was done at an institution called the gymnasium, the gymnasium, which you have, of course, the modern gymnasium. And the gymnasium was the crucial, I would say the crucial cultural institution of the Greek world the way it's become in American life today, right? People very rarely go to the library to read Aristotle. But people are all the time in the health club. So this is a phenomenon that you all know about, right? Everybody's worried about building their bodies and their minds, of course, atrophy. So the phenomenon of athletics is very important. And for Jews especially, which was so foreign to go naked in public and then to participate in this kind of athletic engagement and all of the other things that went with it, especially homosexuality. Homosexuality was the preferred sexual style of Greek men, of Hellenistic men, and marriage existed, women existed, but that was largely for purposes of procreation. The ideal sexual relation was an older man with a younger boy, so it's a very curious thing. And obviously, in Jewish life, that was something very different in its, appreciation. Now, against this context of what Hellenism meant, you have to understand the way Alexander tried to pursue it. He didn't force people to become Greeks, but he offered them benefits. He said to a city-state, if you will become a Greek city-state, put on athletic games, adopt the Greek cultural mode, use Greek as the language, then we will give you tax benefits. What were the tax benefits? He said... You will pay less to me as an overlord in direct taxes, and you will have to supply fewer men to the Greek army. The way the armies of Alexander were staffed was that there was a draft. Every conquered city, every conquered empire had to supply a certain number of men into the army. If you agreed to the program of Hellenization, your direct taxes and the amount of manpower that you had to produce was less. And of course, that was seductive, that was attractive, And in addition, Hellenism, because of the power of the overlord and because of the genius of the theory, became very widespread. Hellenism spread through the Middle East. Hellenism spread to the areas of Iraq, what is today Iraq and Iran, the Persian Empire after the conquest, all the way to the borders of India. Hellenism also gave economic advantages of a different sort. Let's say you were, take the Jews, you were a trader in Jerusalem. You traded in something. And all of a sudden, you now had a universal network. You could trade with other Greek speakers in Greece, or Macedon, or Rome, or Iraq, or Iran, or Damascus. There are lots of advantages, political, cultural, economic. Now Hellenism therefore, not surprisingly, backed by the armies of Alexander, spread very widely. And there really are two phases of Hellenism. The first phase, vis-a-vis the Jewish people, I would date from the 320's, when Alexander comes to the land of Israel, down to the Hasmonean Revolt. The Hasmonean Revolt is the story of Hanukkah, right? You're all familiar with the story of Hanukkah. That was the great revolt against Hellenism in Jewish life. 167 The persecutions against the Jews start. They go on for three years to 164. The end of the first phase of the persecutions ends in 164. Doesn't end the struggle with the Syrians. That goes on roughly for another 12 or 14 years. And finally, the Jews able to get their complete freedom sometime in the 150s. From 150 on, the Jews and the other Oriental peoples push back. There's more of a pushback against this. Like all cultural phenomena, political phenomena, they run out of steam and then other forces take over and respond. Now the thing about the Hellenistic world was that it showed a new interest obviously given all these conditions in universalism. People started to be curious about others and this is where you get the actual beginning of the notion of the ecumene, like in the Christian community you hear about the word ecumenical, Ecumenical Ecumene means the civilized world, the known world. People were curious about the known world. Nationality, obviously, nationalism and nationality falls into something of the background in this Greekification. Interestingly, we have very little evidence of race hatred, of religious hatred in this period. The Greeks were very tolerant, the late Greeks especially. You can believe any god you want. You can believe in all the gods you want. You can believe in none of the gods. And so you have in this civilized world many forces that are pushing to a kind of integration of different peoples, an integration of different culture. Religion in particular was a source of significant debate in the Hellenistic world. In the Hellenistic world there were two Greek traditions that become new traditions that become prominent. The first is Epicureanism. Do all of you know Epicureanism? Eat, drink, and be merry. That's how we usually describe it. But the real theory of Epicurus was that there are gods but they don't interfere in human life. That was the theory of Epicurus. But more important was the growth of Stoicism. The Stoics tried to rationalize Greek religion. They tried to play down the myths and replace it with a more theoretical view and they were interested in morality. The Stoics were interested in the status of women. They were interested in the status of slaves. They are interested in ethical questions that had fallen uh, into uh, kind of backwater among Greek thinkers. So the Hellenistic world grows in interesting ways. And of course, in all these ways, religion is also a political phenomenon, as you all know, in the city states. Now, let's think about religion one more moment, and then I'll turn to the Jews. I want to stress because of the importance historically of religion and what I'm going to come back to later today to talk a little bit about the issue of syncretism. What is syncretism? Syncretism is when two cultures meet, in this case in the religious area, and they take elements from the two traditions and they syncretize them. They make one tradition out of it, right? Syncretism. You see that in America very clearly. If you go south, if you go into Mexico or you go into... Uh, South America, you'll see the Christianity of the South Americans is syncretistic. There was an indigenous religion then Catholicism came and overlay the local religion, but the local religion didn't disappear. So the local fertility goddess became the Virgin Mary. The local corn god became Jesus. Now I mention this because this is exactly what happened in the classical world. You had a lot of religious syncretism. In the first phase when Hellenism was expansive, powerful, influential, the Greek gods came to the Middle East. And if you go, I'm sure you've all been to the land of Israel. If you go to, for example, the archaeological park in Ashkelon, you'll see their statues. And the statues are Zeus. The statues are Aphrodite. The statues are uh, all of the Greek gods. But what is really happening is more complicated. The Greek names, Zeus, is there, but you have to look closely to see whether what's really happening is the worship of Zeus, or in some way it's the continuation of the worship of Baal, who is the local god, right? You can change the name, but underneath the people are still practicing many of their indigenous traditions. Now, the reason I mention this is that you have syncretism. You have the influence of foreign Greek religion in the Middle East, especially in the land of Israel for our purposes. But it doesn't mean that the local religion dies. It doesn't mean that the local religion altogether is eviscerated. It means that it becomes something a little different, but it carries on. And the local people are still in some way whole. Moreover, you have to remember that syncretism reflects another phenomenon. Who represents Hellenism in the Middle East? Not the philosopher kings of the Republic of Plato, but the army, right? The army. The army comes and it conquers Egypt. The army comes and it conquers the Persian Empire. Who is making up the Greek army? Men. What do men do? They come to a place. They sign up for a lifetime. It's not like our army. You sign up for 30 months or 40 months. They sign up for a lifetime. They're professional soldiers. They come to a place and they're garrisoned in Egypt, they're garrisoned in the land of Israel. What do you think they do? They have relations, sexual relations, family relations with local people. Now just think, you're one Greek man surrounded by a local family. You have an Egyptian mother-in-law, an Egyptian wife, Egyptian cousins now, Egyptian culture. Who do you think in the end is gonna be stronger? The one Greek man or all those Greek women? Oh, Egyptian women. So, so you see what happens, that you have to understand the melding of these two cultures takes place at many levels and you can't look at these as historians often do, simple-mindedly. The term Hellenism appears, you think they're Greek. The name ba- uh, Zeus appears, you think it's Greek religion. You see the Greek language, you think they're talking about Plato and Aristotle or Herodotus, but they're not. They're using Greek names, Greek language, but they're asserting local values, local interests, local social norms, local family interests, and so on. Now, this uh, happens among the Jews too. The Jews start to speak Greek. The Jews start to be integrated into the Greek world, especially the wealthy Jews in Jerusalem. The poor Jews in the countryside are probably little touched by this. They have little to gain by it. They're peasants, whether they're under the Greeks, they're peasants, whether they're under the Persians. They go about their life in a very simple way. The intellectuals in Yerushalayim, however, start to engage this. They have an interest in this. They want to be part of the world that has now been expanded. They want the benefits of Hellenism. And when they start to engage Hellenism, Hellenism engages them. And Hellenism encourages new intellectual discussion, new intellectual debate, new intellectual issues that become world historical in their consequence. By world historical, I mean it sets forth issues that flow out into the world in ways they had never intended. Right? You can't control ideas. The famous saying of a nineteenth century Rebbe who said there are some ideas you shouldn't have. And if you have them, you shouldn't tell them. You shouldn't speak them. And if you speak them, you shouldn't write them down. And if you write them down, you shouldn't publish them because you never know where a published book is going to wind up, right? So you may have a thought, and all of a sudden, it will have consequences you never intended. What happens among the Jews, I'm sure, was unintended, but it was extraordinary. The Jews now, again, begin a period of enormous spiritual and cultural creativity you might say goaded by, inspired by, encouraged by the Greeks, also out of apologetic purposes, trying to defend Jewish interests, Jewish values, they begin to produce a new literature. And they begin to preoccupy themselves with a new set of intellectual problems that will become the foundation of all future civilization. The great ideas of that Greek world, of the Hellenistic Jewish encounter. These come in two forms. The first is in Hebrew, and there's a debate among scholars of which Hebrew books are written in this period. For example, there are some people who think that the final editing of a number of the biblical books takes place only in the Hellenistic period, like the Song of Songs, uh, like Ecclesiastes, right, Vanity of Vanity. I myself think they come a little earlier, but the fact is it's clear that there are Hebrew authors, Hebrew books, Hebrew ideas being discussed in a very intense way. We know in the Hellenistic period a very famous book is produced in Hebrew called Ben Sira, the wisdom of Ben Sira. I don't know if any of you know the book of Ben Sira. The book of Ben Sira is a very famous book in the ancient world, and it was clearly composed in Hebrew sometime in the middle Hellenistic period. The other kind of books that I don't have time to talk about but you should all know, because they're really very, very much a reflection of great Jewish creativity. There are three categories of books that the Jews produced that are famous books, unfortunately Jews don't read them anymore because the church adopted them as important books. And they wound up in the Christian Bible. The first is pseudepigrapha. What does pseudepigrapha mean? Pseudo means false, epigrapher writing. But it doesn't mean false in the sense, you know, that it's a lie. We use the word pseudopigraphy in our time that way. But pseudopigraphy here means writings that have a pseudonymous author. For example, someone will write a book and they will call it the Testament of Levi. Now, obviously, Levi, the son of Jacob, didn't write the book. The Testament of Abraham, right? So there's a whole series of books called the Testament of the Patriarchs. The books were a Jewish theologically creative enterprise of wrestling again with biblical themes like what is the justice of God? What is the covenant with the Jewish people? What is the meaning of Torah? All the classical themes are again reworked in the pseudopigrapha. The most famous pseudopigrapha is what? Do any of you know? It's the one that made it into the Bible. The book of Daniel. Daniel, remember Daniel? Daniel is a prophet. And where does Daniel, according to the story, live? In the Persian capital, right? And he is a member, he's a court here in Persia. And he has a kind of uh, strained relations with his colleagues because he won't do what? Never saw the movie? Because he won't eat trafe, He won't eat with them. So they're very angry at him. They feel he's a sort of a snob or whatever. And eventually, you know, he winds up in the Daniel in the lion's den. They, they sort of uh, undermine his authority. They tell on him and so on. It's almost certainly the case that the book of Daniel was not written in the 5th century in Persia, but in the 2nd century in the land of Israel. And what is the theme of the book of Daniel, the overriding theme? You can see it at what I've just told you about Kashrut. What's the theme? Keeping the Jewish tradition against foreign overlords. What are the Jews struggling with in the second century before the common era? Keeping Jewish tradition against Greek overlords. But they couldn't write it as a contemporary book. One, because contemporary literature in the ancient world had less authority than ancient literature. And secondly, because they might get their head cut off. So this is a kind of samizdat literature like you had in the Soviet Union, a kind of underground literature against the current political establishment. But when they put the Bible together by the rabbis, they took it as a literal book from the fifth century, and they included the book of Daniel. Pseudonymous writing, pseudepigrapha. The second set of writings, and there's a whole very great literature, ladies and gentlemen, written by the Jews, pseudepigrapha. Second set, which we don't again, I apologize, is apocrypha. What does the word apocrypha mean in Greek? Somebody said who's. Is that you, Rabbi Myers? Did you say secret? Somebody said secret. Oh, secret. 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 The technical meaning was secret. Secret. That these were secret books. What the secrets are, we could discuss. There's all kinds of ideas that they contain, special doctrines, theories. The rabbis knew these books. The rabbis essentially approved of most of these books. But for reasons that aren't clear, Probably because they were becoming very popular among early Jewish Christians and then Christians, the rabbis also left them out. But if you look at a Catholic Bible, you'll see it includes the Apocrypha. And the last is a whole series of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is a kind of literature reflecting on the world in a different way than is usually the case in Jewish uh, classical literature. Biblical literature always, or almost always, takes the form of revelation, right? God said that's revelation, the prophets are revelation. Wisdom literature is clearly not revelation, it's a human reflection, it's a kind of Jewish philosophical exercise in which Jews reflect on the nature of truth, on the nature of reality, on the nature of nature. So there's a whole literature again that Jews uh, create. So that's one side of the influence. The influence is very marked, it's a great shame that people don't read the pseudepigraphic, the apocryphal, the wisdom literature, because you would come to have a very great appreciation for the kind of creativity that Jews were engaged in before, before the rabbinic period. This period is called, of course, the intertestamental period, after the close of the Hebrew Bible with the late prophets, Malachi, Zechariah, and so on, and then the rabbinic literature, which we have from the second century, first and second century of the common era. But in this intertestamental period between the, New Testament, between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, between the end of the Hebrew Bible and rabbinic literature, the Jews were now, because of the Greeks, again, very creative. And these ideas will have enormous influence. They won't have them on Judaism. They'll have them on Christianity. But the world would not be the same if it weren't for these books. Very, very important. The second set of literature that I need to mention and is more consequential in a fundamental way are the books that the Jews wrote in Greek. Now, this, of course, is a new phenomenon, Jews writing in Greek. Now, why were they writing in Greek? Well, they were writing in Greek for a number of reasons. First of all, it should be said, and it's said honestly, that the Jews were very impressed with Greek culture. In the history of the Jewish people, when you start to study a specific era or a specific location, a community, There's always one question that is a kind of introductory, a basic question, and that is, how did the Jews view their neighbors? So, for example, take Poland, because most of the people I imagine this audience come from uh, the Russian-Polish community, right? Your ancestors came to America. They went to Poland in the 17th century, in the 18th century, whenever they went to Poland, and they lived in Poland for hundreds of years, hundreds of years and they built the largest Jewish community of the known world at that time in Poland, 3.3 million Jews. But they looked down on Poland. They thought the Polish culture was very primitive. There was nothing to learn from the Poles. There was nothing to imitate among the Poles. They had a very derisory view. So when they have a derisory view of the culture, they don't bother to study the language. They don't throw themselves into acculturation, right? They figure these are primitive people, we're superior. And that was true of most of the encounters of Jews in the history of the world. Most of the time when we went to places, we felt we had superior culture. There are only a few encounters where that was not the case, and in those encounters, you have enormous creativity. The first is with the Greeks. The second then will be with the Muslims in medieval Spain. And the third will be in modernity in Western Europe. So here is the first time that the Jews really feel they're over against a very high culture. They can learn something from these Greeks. They were very impressed by Greek philosophy, very impressed by Greek historians, very impressed by Greek logicians, very impressed by Greek astronomy and science. And so they emulated it. If you're impressed by something, what's the sincerest form of flattery? To imitate it. So Jews start to imitate, in a way, Greek culture. And you see that in all kinds of ways. First of all, they start to write Greek philosophy. Now, The fact is that Greek philosophy was of course the the greatest monument in a way of Greek culture and the Jews were impressed by it and we have a, a name for example you've never heard of named Aristobulus who was a Jew, you see by the name Aristobulus already that he's acculturated because that's not a biblical name and he was speaking Greek, he obviously had a Greek education and he tried to write Jewish Greek philosophy. What does it mean, Jewish Greek philosophy? He tried to explain the Bible as a philosophical book. And he begins the tradition of seeing Moses as a kind of Greek philosopher. And he discusses issues like Greek philosophers, not as a revelation, but as human intellect. Parenthetically, I will tell you this starts a tradition. The tradition is that among Jews, there was an old tradition that Plato was a student of Jeremiah. Of course, it's a nonsense, but the Jews asked themselves, how could this Greek be so smart? Obviously, he had a study with Jeremiah. And this is an old tradition, that really the greatest philosophers were the Jews, the Greeks learned it from the Jews, and then uh, we rediscovered it. So you have you have Greek uh, philosophy, Aristobulus. And of course, later on, and I'll come back to it in a few minutes, you have the greatest of all the ancient Jewish Uh, Greek philosophers of enormous historic importance named Philo of Alexandria in the first century before the common era. The second thing is you start to get Jewish historical writing. By Jewish historical writing, I mean Jews imitating Greek historians. Now we had written a form of history, right? If you read the Torah, you see that it's a form of history, especially from the second book of the Bible, from Exodus, right? It tells how we left Egypt, we wandered in the desert, the various historical episodes in the desert. Then later on, we have Joshua, which is a kind of historical book about the conquest of the land. Then we have Kings and Samuels about what happened under the kings of Israel. But it's always history written from a theological point of view, that there's a providential God, and that the providential God is using history to direct the forces of The world for his purposes. Here, the Greek historians, though they're biased, the Greek historians don't write modern history. They write usually a kind of hero history. They write about great men. They write about the victories of great men. And often they're on the payroll of great men so that they would write these histories. Uh, There's the most famous, of course, was the uh, historian for Justinian, the late Roman emperor, who then wrote Procopius, who also wrote a secret history which told the truth, and that's his most famous book. But the fact is that Jews start to write history. Now, this is interesting. The Jews in the classical period under Greek influence write history. Once the second temple is destroyed, the Jews don't write history again for 1,500 years. After Josephus, there's essentially no Jewish history till the late Renaissance period, as Ayah de Rossi and others. And thirdly, Jews start to be interested in their political culture. So, for example, a very famous letter called the Letter of Aristeus is a Greek Jewish book which tries to explain Jews in Greek Egypt, what they were doing, what their influence was, and it's especially famous because it does what? It tells the story of how the Septuagint, the Greek Hebrew Bible, the Greek Jewish Bible, came into being, the Letter of Aristeus. We also have Greek translations of Ben Sira. We have Greek translations of all of the Pseudepigrapha and Apocrypha. We have the wisdom of Solomon in Greek. Now, what does all that mean? I've just said it very quickly. I apologize, but I see Susan is here. She's going to tell Ari I ran over. The fact is that this translation of Jewish literature is very significant. On the one hand, Jews are doing creative things in response to the Greeks, but they're not just taking from the Greeks. They're not just taking Greek philosophy and writing Jewish versions. They're not just taking Hellenistic historians and making Jewish history. They're not just taking what we might call cultural history and writing Jewish cultural history. They're also giving something. And they're giving something of very great importance. What they're giving in return are Jewish translations of Jewish books for which there must have been an audience. Now that audience was of two kinds. It was a Jewish Greek speaking audience that had learned Learn Greek and forgotten Hebrew. Just like in America today, we have a whole industry, art scroll, other kinds of things where people are reading Hebrew books in English because they've lost Hebrew. And there's also the phenomenon of trying to reach the Gentiles, Gentile intellectuals who are now interested in this whole new world, this ecumene. They wanna know, what do the Jews think? What do the Jews think? Moreover, in early Greek sources of this period, The Jews are described as a race of philosophers. It's very interesting, very positive views of the Jews because of these translations, because of these uh, cultural monuments. Now, here comes the $64 point that I want to stress that I made at the beginning, that this is the most consequential. I repeat it so George will be able to write it in his notes, having come in 40 minutes late. (laughs) That this is the the most consequential encounter in the history of the world the most consequential cultural encounter in the history of the world, and the cultural encounter through which Judaism became world consequential. Two big claims. Why do I make those claims? Because of this business of Jewish-Greek literature. The first, and of course most important, is the Septuagint. What does the Septuagint mean? The translation of the 70 of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Now the letter of Aristeus tells us a story. The story is that the King Ptolemy of Egypt, remember there was a great library in Egypt, the Great Library of Egypt, and Ptolemy wanted to have a Greek copy of every important book in the world in his library. This would later be followed by the Arabs. The Arabs would do this, for example, in the Great Library of Damascus. They would translate everything into Arabic, and that Jews were important in the Middle Ages as translators. So they translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And according to the letter of Aristeus, he wrote to the high priest and he said, please send me a group of translators who will translate it. According to the ancient tradition, the high priest agreed. He sent him 70 sages. The 70 sages came to Alexandria. He put each of them in a separate cubby, a separate room to do his own translation. And according to the movement of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, each of the 70 translations was the same. This is the tradition. That is to say that according to the Greek tradition, the Hebrew Bible in Greek carries the authority of the Holy Spirit. God authorized it. God approved it. Otherwise, he would have made a new Tower of Babel, right? He would have had 70 people, and they would all produce 70 different translations. I won't vouch for that story, but I will say that there was a slow, progressive translation of the Bible into Greek. Obviously the earlier part the earliest part would have been the five books of Moses and the reason for that is clear we use it in the synagogue on Saturday it's so central to Jewish life people who didn't have Hebrew needed a Hebrew trans- a Greek translation and so they translate the Greek five books of Moses and then slowly i would say over maybe the course of a century or so they translate the other books of the bible until all the books are translated and we have the Septuagint Now, the Septuagint is, of course, interesting in a variety of ways. First of all, and most important, it makes available the story of Judaism and the Hebrew tradition to the Greek world, to the whole world of the Mediterranean conquered by the Greeks. Also importantly, parenthetically, I don't have time to discuss it, makes us aware of how people understood the Bible in that time, because you all know the old saying, every translation is an interpretation. So there are places in the Hebrew Bible where you have a certain ambiguity, and you have to translate them. The Same with the Targumim, the Aramaic. If you study the Aramaic, you see they're dealing with certain intellectual problems, and they resolve them in one way or the other. In the Greek translation, there are intellectual problems, and the Greek translators resolve them. And they obviously resolve them on the basis of their understanding of what the Bible is, what the Bible should be in contemporary terms. Now this translation, ladies and gentlemen, I can't stress enough, is the single most important translation, in some ways the single most important book in the history of the world. Why is it the most important translation and the most significant historical document? Because it opens Judaism to an international audience. It stops being the book of a small people in the land of Israel with their own local traditions and it now reaches the entire world of Greek culture. And interestingly, it finds a receptive audience. In the conversation that was going on in the Greek world, which I, the Hellenistic world that I mentioned to early about the Stoics and the Epicureans and the Neoplatonists and all these people who are interested in religion, Judaism came as a new kind of idea, new source of truth, new composition that spoke with authority. The Greeks were especially impressed by Jewish morality. We see from the Greek authors that they were particularly impressed by the notion that all human beings are created in the image of God. That was very much appreciated by the Stoics. We see Juvenal later on in Latin literature was impressed by the Messianic idea. So in the, I think in the seventh eclogue of Juvenal, you'll find the Messianic idea drawn from the Jews. You'll see an interest in family life, the values of family. We talked a little bit a moment ago about women, family, sexuality. All of these issues had a warm audience. Now, this warm audience grew. And we have, as rabbinic literature tells us, a whole community of the Ger Toshav. The Ger Toshav is the convert who stands by the gate. The gaitashav in the early literature probably doesn't mean an actual convert. It means that when the synagogue would have a lecture, right, a a biblical teaching using the Greek, the Greeks could come and listen. So you started to have what we might call semi-proselytes, people who came to the synagogue and were interested in Jewish things. And slowly that community grew, especially, it seems, among Greek women, because they especially appreciated that Judaism valued women more than Greek culture did. The result is that you start to lay the foundation throughout the Hellenistic world, throughout the Mediterranean world, a Greek-speaking, non-Jewish, semi proselyte community. The consequence of that, you could all anticipate. When Paul goes out into the Roman world in the first century where does he go to preach he always goes to synagogues now he gets into trouble usually in the synagogues and he tells in the book of Acts tells how the synagogues beat him and and mock him and so on but he goes to the synagogues and what does he do there he preaches in Greek the Pauline letters are in Greek and he preaches to a Jewish Greek audience and to a Jewish non-Greek audience And he says to the Jewish non-Greek audience, in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free. And he starts to make converts. And he convinces the early church to reject the position of Peter that you have to first become a Jew in order to become a, you have to first become a Jew in order to become a Messianic Jew, right? You have to convert. So Paul takes the Greek gospel, which is already known in the Greek world, and he makes Christianity triumphant. The whole history of the world, and I say this without apology, the whole history of the world is shaped by the use of the Pauline Bible. Pauline Bible means the Septuagint. By the uh, possibility of the whole non-Jewish world becoming heir to the promises of Israel if through a different route called Christianity. So the whole spread of Christianity is due to the Septuagint. Without the Septuagint, you can't get there. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul is less important, but it means that Paul is impossible without the (coughs) Septuagint, the spread of Christianity in Rome, in Corinth, all the places he goes to preach. He doesn't come to ground that isn't already fertile. People interested in Jewish ideas, Jewish morality, Jewish messianism, Jewish ideas of God. The second important uh, figure that I should mention here is Philo, who I cited earlier just by name. Philo of Alexandria, that's spelled P H I L O, Philo of Alexandria comes from a very wealthy Jewish family. His brother was the richest man in Egypt. He was the tax collector. You have to remember, all the way up till modern times, there was an institution in society called the tax farmer. What's a tax farmer? Anyone know? You've all studied Jewish history. What's a tax farmer? A tax farmer is the following. Today, you have to fill out a W-2, right? If you you get paid, you fill out a W-2 and they say where you live and then the employer reports your income and uh, takes a certain deduction, whatever it might be. If you're a foreigner, you work in America, there are different rules, but we all pay taxes directly to the government. And that's made possible by modern technology. In the pre-modern world, it was impossible, but the kings always needed money. So how did they do it? they would set at the beginning of the year an amount of money they needed. Let's say a million dollars. And then a consortium or an individual, if he was wealthy enough, would come and give the king a million dollars. And he would buy from the king the right to tax. All the taxes would go to him. So he would tax salt, he would tax wine, he would tax grain, he would tax whatever he taxed. Right? Now that, more often than not, through the history of the Western world were Jews. Jews were tax farmers. So they would give the king a million dollars. Of course, it was a risky business. If there was a revolt, if there was something, you might lose your million dollars. But naturally, to take such a big risk, you wanted to get back more than a million dollars. So if you had a stable society, you were not terribly impressive, so nobody murdered you, you were able to function as the tax farmer, you got very wealthy, right? leading tax farmer, the wealthiest man in Egypt, was Philo's brother. So wealthy, in fact, that his son converted to paganism, married into the royal family of the Roman uh, emperor, and he was the general who led the army that destroyed the Second Temple. So, the fact is, these are all curious little things that, that play a role. So the fact is that Philo had a good education. He was, he was well-educated. He had a Jewish education and he had a Greek education reflecting the class, the elite class from which he came to. And we know that he was a very influential member of the community. He represented the Alexandrian community when there was a major pogrom. And he came to Caligula to plead for the Jews, and just at that time, Caligula was. Uh, remember, Caligula set up a statue, wanted his own statue in the temple. He was uh, the, the mad Caligula. He was Meshuggah, and uh, he was assassinated by the Praetorian Guard, and he was succeeded uh, by uh, Claudius. So the fact is that Philo is very important as a political figure, but that's not the great importance. Philo had a deeper agenda, Philo was a real intellectual, and his deep agenda becomes the agenda of Western culture from the time of Philo until uh, let us say the 17th, 18th centuries. And what is the, the great intellectual agenda of intellectuals, right, and intellectuals in the Western world, in the Mediterranean world from the first century to the 17th century, 18th century? What's the overriding issue? You, the issue is reconciling Athens and Jerusalem, as it's called, reconciling Greek philosophy and the Bible. Right, That's the great issue. When the Western tradition looks for its intellectual roots, it looks to the Greeks. So it reads Aristotle. If you want to go to a medieval university and study, what do you do? Go into the library here at Irvine or uh, UCLA, better because they, they're an older library. They probably have a larger collection. And look up Aristotle and you'll see that under Aristotle you'll find the following. A short commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. The middle commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. The long commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. Why? Because when you went to university, you studied Aristotle. That was truth. The first year you were freshman, you were a beginner, so you studied the short commentary. The second year you were a little more educated, you studied the middle commentary. The third year, or you Go to graduate school, you would study the and commentary, Aristotle. So you have Aristotle as the root of everything you do. That's the whole Western intellectual tradition essentially built on Aristotle, with some help from Plato and some of the other Greeks, especially in medicine, like Galen and so on. But then on the other hand, you're a religious tradition, right? You became a Christian world, you became a Muslim world. You were a Jewish world. So you have the problem. You have your own truth. You have scripture. But you don't want to be a hick, you study Aristotle as well. Then you find out that Aristotle doesn't seem to agree with Genesis when it comes to creation, for example. In the metaphysics of Aristotle or in the Timaeus of Plato, you get a different theory of how the world came into being than you do in Genesis. So what do you do? You give up Aristotle? Well, you can't just give up Aristotle, he's the base of your whole intellectual world. You give up Genesis, well you can't give up Genesis because it's the base of your whole religious, cultural world. So what do you have to do? You have to try to reconcile them. You have to try to bring Plato and Aristotle into the Bible and the Bible to be Plato and Aristotle. And that process is the process of philosophical theological interpretation. And the father, the most important father of this effort to reconcile what we would call faith and reason it's a problem you all know, we have it today, right? Faith and reason. What about, is science true? If science is true, how can Genesis be true? We have the whole debate about uh, intelligent design. Is that something that's big in California, I think, isn't it? And it's the intelligent design, whether that really should be taught along with Darwinism in um, biology classes. So it's become a big political issue too, I think. Uh, in Washington, people are pushing intelligent design where there is, it's clearly evidence that there is none. The fact is that uh, you have a, a, fundamental, a fundamental phenomenon of intellectual wrestling with the two sources of truth, Judaism and the Greeks, the Bible and Aristotle. Now Philo gives a brilliant effort, makes a brilliant effort in many, in a big series of books Uh, which are all commentaries on scripture, in which he proposes to reconcile faith and reason. How is he going to reconcile faith and reason? He's going to read the Bible non-literally. He's going to read it, as he would say, allegorically. So if you read the Bible allegorically and you read the Greek philosophers allegorically, presto, you'll find out they both teach the same thing. Now that effort which I recommend to you because of its remarkable interest, becomes what all Western intellectuals do for 17 or 1800 years, and they still do it in our time. You still have people trying to reconcile Genesis with the Big Bang, right? All kinds of books of this kind. You have people who write books about the Bible as a current political theory, Moses as the model of what a, a political leader should be. This whole effort of trying to hold on to both, Philo gives the great paradigm. He's the first one to articulate that in a really interesting and persuasive way. And he becomes, therefore, crucial. All of early Christian theology is allegorical. That's why the Jews reject allegorical interpretation till the late Middle Ages. And he is, therefore, in some way, not disparagingly, what I call the first church father. Because all the church fathers were Platonists reading Philo and interpreting the Bible allegorically. Now, this means that in the Septuagint, you have the foundation stone translation that makes Judaism of world historical importance. And in Philo, you have a Jew providing the method by which to work out the problem posed when Greeks take the Septuagint seriously, right? And when Jews take Greek philosophy seriously. Now, there are many other things that one could say about this encounter. Of course, at its heart, despite the allegorical uh, efforts of Philo, which were really very entertaining, very brilliant, very interesting, and they're available to you. You can all find a wonderful translation of Philo, I think in 12 volumes now, uh, with the low classical library, both the Greek on one side, the, the English on the other, so if you don't know English, you can still read it. And the fact is that you have uh, many things, but one still cannot get over the issue that Judaism at its root, is antithetical to Greek culture. It's antithetical because, first of all, it's theocratic, believes that there is a God who is the source of authority. It believes in revelation, that God speaks to human beings and gives authoritative teachings, as compared to the Greeks who believed in philosophy, which meant human wisdom reflecting on problems, human intellect being the source of truth. Judaism is strict monotheism. The Greeks, of course, are a kind of polytheism of a very crude kind. Not only is it crude in the sense that it numerically multiplies the gods, but it's crude in the sense that it has a very anthropomorphic idea of the gods, right? That the gods are always involving themselves in human history in a very uh, minute, uh, which I say uh, primitive way. So, for example, you have the story of the Trojan War. You have the story of later on Leda and the swan, right, where the god wants to make love to Leda, so he becomes a swan. Uh, So these whole primitive ideas were uh, offensive to certainly certain Jews, where Israel thought of itself as being a kingdom of priests. The Greeks were a nation of athletes, of things concerned with the body. Of course, that concern with the body gives us the greatest plastic culture in the history of the world, the Greek uh, architecture in the form of the Parthenon, Greek sculpture in the form of the uh, figures like Praxiteles, the the Scobalus, you all know, uh, in uh, Greek pottery, which is a very great thing. Uh, Does the Getty have that pot? Who bought that famous pot that they stole from Greece? Was it the Getty or the Met? I think maybe the Met. Uh, this uh, amphora, the famous amphora with the figures, beautiful. You all know the red on black, the black on red. Very famous artistic creativity among the Greeks. The Jews don't do creative things like that. We don't do plastic arts. We don't have bodily things, right? And we have the, we have the second commandment, thou shalt not make graven images. So we generally have a whole different sensibility, religious sensibility, cultural sensibility, ethical sensibility. We believe in Torah and its obligations. And therefore, at heart, there is a deep struggle. And the issue is how to reconcile these two forces, the inner forces of Judaism and the great, I want to stress, the great cultural creativity of the Greeks. And that's a modern struggle too, right? Our struggle is still the struggle of Hellenism. How do we reconcile those things that we hold dear as Jews with the extraordinary genius of the modern world, science, technology, philosophy, history? So Hellenism also points us to enduring, not solutions, but enduring lessons. Namely, this is an old issue of uh, encounter. Jews have been here before. It also might give us some confidence and hope that it needn't be all negative and destructive because of all the great creativity. Nor does it have to be a kind of uh, winner take all, that you have to put your sum on one or the other. There are ways of reconciliation, ways of integration, ways of uh, interpretation. So the encounter with the Greeks is really a great story. And it's the story that makes Jews so interesting to other people. Because as a result of this story, we become part of the world history. And then from then on, we are caught up, of course, in a peculiar way in the Christian story from which we can never extricate ourselves. But all of that is made possible also by these translations and these commentaries on the Septuagint. So it's a very, very significant part of Jewish history that I'm happy to share with you. Thank you very much.